0: Chapter 24, the last chapter of his gospel, Uh, the more I thought about it, uh, as I I tried to think about what we'd look at together this morning, I thought it'd be fitting to begin a new year here at the empty tomb. Uh, Chapter 24 of Luke might be uh, my favorite resurrection account for all that Luke includes here. Uh, And I do not have the time to do this whole chapter justice, but I want to read the whole chapter And just think about uh, the resurrection this morning as we begin a new year as this church has a lot of exciting and new things ahead uh, for it. I pray that this will be a blessing to all of us as we read it together. So if you would uh, read with me, Luke chapter 24. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body And they remembered his words and returning to the from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them that told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. But him they did not see. And he said to them, "O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and he blessed and broke it and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together and saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and he was and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, see my feet, that it is my eye myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, how have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The scene ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May he add his blessing to the reading and preaching of it. I'd like to suggest that when you look at the gospel of Luke in its entirety, Luke, all the gospel writers, but Luke especially, presenting to Theophilus, who he addresses this gospel to, presenting to him Jesus, of whom he's heard of, wanting him to have assurance of the things that he's been taught, wanting him to know just who this Jesus is. And I would suggest to you that as Luke builds and builds in the gospel, when we get to Luke chapter 23 in the crucifixion, you get the climactic answer to who is this Jesus and what is so compelling about him. And it was that he died. But the follow-up to that question is, why is it so compelling that a guy died? And as Luke concludes this gospel, this is what he says. It's so compelling that this man died because he's not dead. He's alive. The empty tomb, some 20 to 25 years later, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins and we are of all people most to be pitied. The empty tomb, the resurrection of Jesus, Christianity fails without it. The Gospel fails without it. Christianity is a farce Without it and what we are doing here this morning and what you do any other day in the name of Jesus is absolutely pointless without it. If Jesus is not raised, if Jesus is not alive, I want to look at just two things with you. I want to look at first, why it's true and why it matters, why it's true and why it matters. A guy named Yaroslav Pelikan said this. I love this quote. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, if, if Jesus Christ, uh, if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, nothing else matters. And if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, nothing else matters. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, nothing else matters. But if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, nothing else matters. You know, I'd be remiss if, if preaching a sermon the first Sunday after New Year's, if I didn't mention resolutions, right? Any resolve that you have, any new leaves that you want to turn over this year, they, they don't matter. Without or apart from the resurrection of Jesus as Augustine and others have noticed, the, the noted, the leading truth professed by early Christians was that Christ rose from the dead. If you look at Paul's sermons throughout Acts. One thing he is constantly presenting to people as he is spreading the news of the gospel is that this Jesus Christ that you put to death is not dead. He's alive. It is the central truth claim of the gospel. And we need to investigate it as such. And I think the best way, one of the best ways, and uh, if you've never read Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, maybe you get tired of hearing his name or reading his books or whatever. But his book, The Reason for God, the whole thing is great. And his chapter on the resurrection is great as well. And I love starting there because I think the best way to investigate the truth claim of the resurrection is to see that any other alternate explanation does not hold water whatsoever. And just to name a few here, there's one uh, called the swoon theory. And this is a theory that says, well, we acknowledge that Jesus uh, did appear to people and and hundreds of people uh, uh, claim that they saw Jesus after he supposedly died. But here's the question. Was he really dead? Was he fully dead? That's the question. That's what this theory is best on. But the whole death and burial accounts of, um, of all the Gospels completely buries that theory. You see what I did there? If you remember, uh, in all the crucifixion accounts of the Gospels, especially in Luke, the whole account makes sure to tell us that there were many people there as Jesus died. He was not ridden off somewhere where nobody knew where he was and killed then. He was killed as a public spectacle. Believers, disbelievers, skeptics, skeptics, All of them pilgrims on their way into Jerusalem. They saw this man hung on a cross and he died. We're told a centurion, a man who would have been in charge of a hundred men who would have overseen hundreds of these crucifixions, certifies. For Pilate, that Jesus was dead. They don't break Jesus' legs because he was dead. They pierced his side. He was dead. Joseph of Arimathea comes and takes the body. The women go to the tomb and watch his body be laid in a tomb. The accounts scream at us, this man was dead. He was killed. He was dead. So the swoon theory really doesn't hold water. Another one is uh, the idea of the delusion of the disciples. Now, that's a good one for New Year's resolutions because I resolve I really want to lose 20 pounds, but that's very much a delusion. Um, We can get our hopes so fixed on things and think they're going to happen. And so the, the theory goes like this. The disciples hope so much for the resurrection of Jesus that they imagine all of it and then they write the history books from there on out. But here's the thing. The most damning evidence to that theory is this the whole of the New Testament in history does not have even one disciple waiting for the resurrection. Not one. Now, I don't know how much shame and guilt of what you didn't accomplish last year you bring into this year. But think about that. The Bible boldly presents to you that not even one of Jesus' disciples are at the tomb on the third day waiting for him to come out. Not one of them was waiting for it even though he explicitly told them he would die, explicitly told him that he would rise on the third day. The women come to the tomb on that third morning not to see Jesus alive, but to anoint his dead body. They were not looking for a resurrection. In all of the accounts where people either see Jesus or are told that he's alive, never once do we hear one person saying, I knew it. I knew he would rise again from the dead. Not one. Even when Jesus himself, as we saw here in chapter 24, even when Jesus himself appears to them, they are shocked, confused, and even terrified. It didn't make sense to them. A third uh, alternate explanation would be that Jesus is just a symbol or a legend. Um, and here's the thing about this one. There were dozens of messi- messianic and revolutionary um, Uh, characters like Jesus, movements before and after Jesus. But there was only one that did not collapse after the death of the leader. And there's only one where the disciples of that leader claimed that their leader had risen again from the dead. Only one. And on top of that, there was no idea of an immortal soul or spirit. It would, made a, it would have made no sense in this time to say, Jesus lives on in us in spirit. You know, there are churches that claim the gospel that say that is what the Bible means. That he lives on in us in spirit. That's what scripture is trying to tell us. That is not Christianity. Christianity. The fourth one is this, and this one is the one that people try to make stick, but it's the most fanciful one of them all to me. That the whole thing was a fraud from the beginning. But if you're going to say that this whole account is a fraud, here's the problem that you must deal with if, it, if this is the case. It is, if it was a fraud, it is, without a doubt, the greatest scam of all history. And there will never be anything that comes close to topping it. It was such a good fraud. That it was so good that within 300 years, it conquered the greatest empire the world had ever seen. A bunch of Galilean rednecks whose leader failed miserably by the world's term, killed by his own people that he came to save, pulled off the greatest scam the world has ever seen. To me, that is more of a leap than the resurrection. Think about who we're talking about here. If, 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 think about who we're talking about pulling this scam off. These were not spiritual juggernauts. These are people that over and over and over again in the Gospels are presented to us as ones who lack faith. Jesus himself calling them out over and over again uh, for lacking faith. They did not have the spiritual acumen to tie their own shoes, spirit, figuratively speaking. They were not in any way expecting a resurrection, even though Jesus told them about. And who do these very same apostles claim were the first witnesses? Women. They put the greatest scam of all history unanimously on the shoulders of women. One, who we read here in chapter 24, the disciples didn't even believe. And two, whose testimony would not have been admissible in court. How could these men pull something like this off? How did they become the founders of the greatest religious movement of all history? One that to this day knows no borders, physical, cultural, racial, economic or otherwise. How could these men so cowardly at the climax of the story go on to be the giants of history that they were? each and every one of them going on to live lives of sacrificial service to the point of death. How can anyone come to the conclusion that these sad, weak, hopeless disciples all of a sudden came to the conclusion that the Christ- crucifixion was not defeat, but rather triumph? Unless, unless they had seen him risen from the dead. That can be The only explanation. That's how losers like the disciples become the giants of history that they were, because it's true. It has to be. For them, it had to be. And it was. They tell us it was. With Paul, the Apostle Paul, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15 there, we stake it all as the church, as his people, as the body, on the historicity of the resurrection. There's no way around it. There's no explaining it away. The claim of Christianity of the Bible is that Jesus rose from the dead, that he is not dead. He is alive. And if it did not literally happen, then all of this is completely, utterly pointless. All of it. And we are most of all to be pitied. I'm not saying that the resurrection should just make sense. It didn't make sense for the disciples, even though they were told about it beforehand. What I am saying is that the Bible is so bold as to say it's true. It's true. And if it's not true, nothing else matters. So I just want to conclude here quickly with why does it matter? Why does it matter? And again, we don't have time to dive into the richness of this chapter. Such a beautiful chapter, but... I think there's three things that we can glean here as to why it matters. And the first one's this. It heals our broken hearts. This is why I thought this was such a just a great place uh, to be as we begin a year together, as we've ended one year and begin another year together. It heals our broken hearts. All three scenes that we get there in Luke chapter 24, the women going to the tomb, the two on the road to Emmaus and then the disciples in the room. All three of these scenes have this, this in common. Sorrow, confusion, and doubt. And they don't know what to do with it. Their hopes have been crushed. They don't know where to go now. Except to hole up in a room. And I, you know, I don't know about you, but Christmas, the end of a year, the beginning of a new year, can be exactly that for so many people around us. So many. We're so familiar with it. All of Jesus' followers' greatest hopes had been dashed. The women don't know what to do with the angel. The two on the road uh, and the disciples don't even know what to do with Jesus. All of Jesus' followers' hearts were broken. They were in pieces and they didn't even know where to start looking to pick it up. Maybe that's how you begin this year. I don't know. But here it is. Why? Why were their hearts so broken? And I think it's this, because if you, read through all the, if you read through a gospel account from beginning to end, what you end up seeing is that the lack of faith, the lack of hope, the lack of confidence, it usually boils down to this. Their hearts were not ultimately fixed on Jesus. Their hearts all along, they're processing what he's saying, they're following, they've given their lives to this man, but they're not clearly seeing just what it is he is or is bringing and ultimately, their hearts were not fixed on him, but what they thought he was bringing. And because of that, they had not believed his words. That's what's so remarkable about the Gospels is how clear Jesus is with his closest disciples. And they completely miss it. So you shouldn't feel ashamed when you miss things, right? You start a new year maybe thinking, I've I, missed so much in my life. The Disciples had Jesus in front of them at night, during the day, on the road. They missed so much, but they had not believed his words. Three different scenes there in Luke, three different scenes of people dealing with their sorrow, confusion, doubt and utter bewilderment. And what do we see Jesus offer as a solution to each one? His words. His words. Verse six, the angel says, remember how he told you. Verse eight, then they remembered His words, verse twenty seven, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Verse thirty two, did not our hearts burn within us while he opened to us scriptures? Verses forty four through forty six. He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and their psalms must be fulfilled. Verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise. It's so simple, yet it's so profound, is it not? What What is the most popular thing for a Christian to think of as they begin a new year? How am I going to read my Bible better? All of us. I've been scouring reading plans. So profound. How does Jesus heal our broken hearts? By appearing to us physically? That doesn't happen to all of us. It happened to these. But even then, that's not immediately what he offers. The first thing he offers is the word of his father. According to Jesus, we need God's word and we need to believe it we need to take it in because if it is true it changes everything and here's the thing this is why we do spend so much time worrying about and feeling bad about how much we read the Bible because we know that it is life giving it changes everything I love Tim Keller says if he rose from the dead you have to accept everything he said and if he didn't why worry about any of it he heals our broken hearts by comforting us with his word. The second thing is this. He heals our broken selves. He heals our broken selves. You find it interesting. Verse 12. Love this. They come in. They, disel, they tell the disciples what's going on. They believe that they're telling an idle tale. But we read in verse 12 that Peter ran to the tomb. doesn't say Peter believed what was going on just says that he ran to the tomb. It was Luke, uh, in Luke twenty two sixty one. he tells us that when Peter denied Jesus for the third time, that Jesus actually at that moment turned and looked at him. And that Peter was broken. And he ran out and he wept bitterly. Why did Peter run to the tomb? May I suggest to you this? Peter needed... The resurrection to be true. Peter needed the resurrection to be true. Peter needed to know that for eternity he would not be marked a denier and a betrayer and a failure. Peter needed to know that his fate was not sealed in a moment of cowardice. Peter needed to know that he was not hopeless. And so he runs to the tomb because he needs it to be true. The fact of the matter is, all of us, all of us are trying to atone for something. We're always doing this. We're always trying to atone for something. It could be guilt, it could be shame, it could just be the emptiness of. Doing, doing, doing and feeling like there's nothing in the tank or that you've achieved nothing in the doing. It could be something you've done. It could be something you haven't done. It could be what you so desperately want to be but you know you don't come close. It could be the pressure of being something that you don't want to be. It could be the exhaustion of climbing the ladder to nowhere in particular. All of us In some way, we're trying to atone for something. It's in the way that we relate to each other. It's in the way that we relate to our spouses, to our children. It's in the way that we pour ourselves into work when there's nothing else left after it and we know that's not right or good. It's in the way that we surround ourselves with people because we're just so desperate for someone to like us. It's in the way that we seclude ourselves even when we're surrounded with people, from letting anyone in. All of it, we're all using it as a means of atonement for falling short. Because all of us in some way have this sneaking suspicion that we have fallen short somewhere. And so we're trying to make up for it every day. The empty tomb, you've got to hear this, the empty tomb is God's sign forever that Jesus' payment on our behalf is acceptable in His sight. The empty tomb is God's sign forever that Jesus' payment on our behalf is acceptable in His sight. Keller puts it like this, the resurrection is God's way of stamping paid in full on all of history. We need it to be true. We cling to it as true because of what it declares to the world and all of history. The final thing is this. It heals our broken hearts. It heals our broken selves. But it also heals our broken world. We need to hear this. And, and I don't know if there's anyone here that maybe you have trouble with the resurrection or something like that of a truth claim of Christianity. But you have to ask yourself this. Do you not at least wish it was true? And here's the thing. It's not that we have nothing to do because the tomb is empty. It's that we now have the power to do it all in him. If it happened, that means that there is infinite hope and reason to pour ourselves out into the needs of the world around us. And we have the ability, the encouragement and the strength to do it, because if you believe that all this is true, it completely transforms how you see the world. You believe if this is true, you believe with assurance that when the kingdom of God comes, there will truly be shalom, peace in all the earth. Complete healing of all the relationships of creation, us to God, us to nature, us to each other, us to our own selves. Jesus' death and resurrection are not just so you and I can go to heaven one day. A guy named Shane Wheeler, in his book, The Briar Patch Gospel, puts it like this. Have you ever wondered, why even raise Jesus from the dead and then have him appear to people over 40 days? Why not just take him straight to heaven? And Wheeler makes this conclusion. The visitation of the resurrected Jesus signals us to the fact that a new reality has been unleashed in the world. Presence and power of Jesus at work here and now. Because what do we see in Revelation 21 at the end of the Bible, at the end of all things? What do we see? Not human beings being taken up out of the world. No, in Revelation 21, we see something actually very interesting. Heaven itself coming down to this earth. The biblical view of things is not consolation It's not resolution. The biblical view of the end of all things is resurrection of all things. Perhaps one of the more overused illustrations by all Presbyterian ministers, but I love it. In the return of the king, the last book of the Lord of the Rings, Samwise Gamgee. He wakes up and he sees Gandalf for the first time since the mines of Moria. And he says this, Gandalf, I thought you were dead but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? Christianity's answer to that is this, that the curse has been broken and that death itself has been defeated. That God's new creation with life and joy has burst in upon a world of decay and sorrow. And in the end, he will declare for all time that I make all things new. Because of the resurrection, we As Christians, as the church, as members, as children of the kingdom of God, we go out into the world with full resolve. And nothing can turn us back, not even the gates of hell. We need a resurrection. Let's pray.